0: Mother's Day. I was thinking this past week how I wished I could have introduced you to my mom. She was a very, very special lady, and I'm sure that you would have loved her as we did. God's used her in so many ways to help me to become who he wants me to be. She's been at home in heaven now for over 20 years, and I just stand amazed at how time flies. But moms, I hope that you will be honored today. And not just today, but I hope as you um, come and are engaged in the Rock Community Church, this will be a place where you're always honored, respected, loved, and valued. So, happy Mother's Day. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Rise and Shine, wrote the following. Ministry is a character profession. To put it bluntly, you can sleep around and still be a good brain surgeon. You can cheat on your mate and have little trouble continuing to practice law. Apparently, it is no problem to stay in politics and plagiarize. You can be a successful salesperson and cheat on your income tax. But you cannot do those things as a Christian or as a minister and continue enjoying the Lord's blessing. You must do right in order to have true integrity. If you can't come to terms with evil or break habits that continue to bring reproach to the name of Christ, please, please do the Lord and us in ministry a favor and resign. Why? Because ministry is a character profession. And I would quickly add, as believers... Ministry is our profession. Someone has also provided a list of six ways to learn everything you ever need to know about a man before you decide to marry him. Number one, watch him drive in heavy traffic. (laughs) Number two, play tennis with him, or I would say play golf with him. Number three, listen to him talk to his mother when he doesn't think you're listening. Number four, see how he treats those who serve him waiters, maids. Number five, notice what he's willing to spend his money to buy. And number six, look at his friends. And if you still can't make up your mind, then look at his shoes. A man who keeps his shoes in good repair generally tends to the rest of his life, too. You see, character matters. And character leaks. We can't hide character. Eventually, it shows up in our actions and our reactions, especially when we're under the gun when the pressure's on. And those are the kinds of circumstances we find Jesus facing here in the opening verses of John chapter 8. His official opposition is applying the pressure. He's under fire. Look at verse 6 of John chapter 8. The first part. They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. The word translated testing is the Greek word peradzo, which means to obtain information to be used against a person by trying to cause someone to make a mistake, to try to trap, to attempt to catch in a mistake. In other words, this is a setup, a sting operation. Where Jesus is under the gun, they are trying to entrap him so that they might have a reason for accusing him or to seize him. Jesus was in their crosshairs and he knew it. Testing exposes character. Keep that in mind as we read these opening verses of John chapter 8. Please stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word this morning. And I'll begin in verse 53 of John chapter 7. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with a finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Please be seated. As we come to this passage of Scripture, my Bible has placed brackets around this entire episode. And in the column, there is a footnote that reads Later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John chapter 7, verse 53 through to 8. Verse 11. So what does that mean? Just what it says. This particular story is not found in the earliest copies we have of John's Gospel. We don't have the original New Testament autographs, of course. However, we do have about 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament Or parts of it. Unprecedented numbers. And some date back as early as the second century. In other words, that some of the copies that we have are copies that were made within 100 years of the originals. But this story is not found in most ancient Greek manuscripts dating back before the 6th century. All that to say that most New Testament scholars today agree that this particular episode is probably not part of the Apostle John's original inspired account. Let me give you some of the internal and external evidence that support their conclusion, and I will be brief but I do think this is important. Let me give you the internal indicators, and then I'll give you a couple of external ones. Look at verse 52 of John chapter 7. They answered him, that's the Pharisees, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now drop down to verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." As you read those two sections of scripture, the transition is almost seamless, which would seem to suggest that John chapter fifty-three to eight eleven has been inserted into this story. Additionally, this episode started showing up in those ancient manuscripts. When it started showing up later in the later manuscripts, it was found to be inserted in several different locations. Obviously here, after John chapter 7, verse 52. But it was also found in John chapter 7, verse 36, inserted there. And then again after John chapter 7, verse 44, some of it have it inserted there. And then there's even other manuscripts that place it at the very end of John's gospel. So John chapter 21, verse 25, and then we have this episode recorded. And then there are still others that have inserted it in Luke chapter 21. Verse 28. Interesting. The fact that it appears to be this floating text in those early days of the church, those early days of transmission, perhaps speaks of its popularity and the significance that the early church placed on this particular story. The last internal indicator that I'll mention is the fact that Some of the vocabulary and even the style of writing found in these verses is unique. It's not the the words and the way it's written is not characteristic of how the Apostle John wrote the rest of the book. A couple of external indicators. I've already mentioned that it's not included in earliest manuscripts. But in addition to that, none of the early church fathers comment on these verses. In fact, in early commentators back in the 6th century and even before, we find this section, this episode, not mentioned in their works as well. So what does all this mean for you and I? Well, Gary Berg, in his commentary on John, poses a legitimate question. The first question any interpreter must answer is whether to teach and preach from this passage at all. Should I even carry the text into my church context today? Well, I am. And here's why I am. Number one, I've already mentioned his popularity and the apparent value. It held in the early church. And although probably not part of John's original manuscript, it seems to have been accepted as a true story. It really did happen. And perhaps this is just one of those examples of those other things that John refers to in John chapter 21, verse 25. Listen to his words. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And here's the final thing that kind of, for me, is really, really important and persuades me to preach and to teach from this episode. And that is that it doesn't contradict any other inspired scripture. In fact, it provides a vivid graphic illustration of Jesus' heart for lost, for those who he came to seek and to save, the lost, the sick, the tax collectors and sinners. And for those reasons, I think that we can look at this episode and learn as well. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your special revelation. Without this book, we would be at a distinct disadvantage, lost, headed for a Christless eternity, with no way of knowing how to escape. Thank you that you empowered and inspired men to write exactly what you wanted written, and that you have preserved those writings so that we can hold them in our hands, read them, study them, and preach them. As we submit to their authority and sufficiency, transform us by the renewing of our minds so that Christ is formed in us, we pray, that we would become more like him. We ask that our study of this particular episode might be used to that end. For your glory, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I like what John MacArthur wrote. This passage is not primarily the story of an adulteress or of the hypocritical religious leaders who cynically used her to attack Jesus. The central figure of this gripping drama of immorality, hypocrisy, and forgiveness, as in all of John's gospel, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith as he engages with those who opposed him. Remembering that, testing exposes character. So how would you go about summarizing this episode in one sentence? How would you do it? Certainly it, in, it involves Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees. There's an unnamed woman that's mentioned, but like I said earlier, she's just a pawn in the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. How would you kind of capture what's happening here? In a sense? Here's my attempt. Jesus' character was exposed by engaging with the scribes and Pharisees who were testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. That's what this episode is about. And so, by studying it, we will be exposed to the character of Jesus. We'll get to know him better. Look at verses 753. Everyone went to his home, eight one, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. If you have a copy of the scriptures that's your own, I'd encourage you to to underline he came again into the temple and maybe even circle that word again. Again suggests repeated behavior. And into the temple is giving his fiercest opponent's home court advantage. I have to admit that I was a little nervous this past Thursday night when the Winnipeg Jets were headed to Nashville. They had failed in finishing their series in the city of Winnipeg amongst their fans and had to return to Nashville for the seventh and final deciding game of their Stanley Cup playoff run. Typically, in a game seven, in your opponent's building, playing in front of their fans is a huge disadvantage. Needless to say, I was quite thankful that the only Canadian team left, the Winnipeg's Jets, were able to survive Nashville's home ice advantage and move on to the Western Conference Finals. Here in John chapter 7, the scribes and Pharisees have home temple advantage. That young rabbi from Galilee, he's an outsider. And yet, he continued to return to the temple, and notice, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. What is that? Jesus, by entering again into the temple to teach them, displayed courage. Extraordinary courage, I might add. Testing exposes character. Look again at verses 3 to 6. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. Remember, these are the same scribes and Pharisees who, back in John chapter 5 already, were seeking all the more to kill him. They hated him. They wanted to eliminate him because they viewed him as a threat to their religion And they thought that he was leading that accursed or ignorant or unlearned crowd, according to chapter 7, verse 49, astray. That was their opinion of the crowd. It was them, the scribes and Pharisees, who brought this woman caught in adultery, verse 3, in the very act, verse 4, Wow. Where's the man? How do you come up with two eyewitnesses, as required by the Mosaic Law, of someone caught in the very act of adultery? How do you do that? Folks, as you read this story, there are all kinds of unanswered questions surrounding the circumstances that led to this woman's accusation. Even the fact that she remains unnamed is significant nameless, faceless, vulnerable, isolated. She is pushed into this. Spotlight by these religious bullies where she stood alone, broken, humiliated, embarrassed. But she was just a pawn. A pawn caught in a religious chess match between a popular young rabbi from Galilee. And the religious heavyweights in Jerusalem. The scribes and Pharisees have just made a strategic move that places Jesus in a huge dilemma. Remember that old joke? George, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Hmm. Yes. That means I have been beating her. No. That means I'm still beating her. Wait a minute. If Jesus refused to endorse this woman's stoning, he's breaking the Mosaic Law. A law that clearly sentences adulterers to be stoned to death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And Jesus has claimed to come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. On the other hand, if he supports her execution, then his reputation as being a compassionate friend of sinners goes out the window. One who has come to seek and to save the lost, who eats with tax collectors and sinners, who is calling them to believe in him and experience eternal life. If he sentences her to death, his reputation would be damaged beyond repair. So what does he do? Look again at the second half of Verse 6, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now there's all kinds of, like imagination runs wild at this point in terms of what he could possibly have been writing on the ground. The point is that it doesn't matter. It's not included. So it's irrelevant to what's being communicated in this story. It's not important. But Jesus, stooping down and with his finger writing on the ground, displayed meekness. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, meekness means having or showing a quiet and gentle nature not wanting to fight or argue with other people. And so we tend to associate meekness with words like timid, soft-spoken, weak. We conclude that a meek person is someone who is shy, unassuming, and would do anything to run from anything that looked like confrontation. But the biblical definition of meekness is strength or power under control. Can you imagine the calmness, the self-control exercised by Jesus while being blindsided by the religious elite of his day when all the people who had come to him were standing around Watching. That is what meekness looks like. Jesus remained calm under fire. When the pressure was on, he didn't get defensive. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't snap back with some kind of sarcastic remark. He didn't withdraw, nor was he intimidated. Instead, he stooped down, started writing in the ground with his finger. James chapter 1, verse 19 reads, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. Why? Verse 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Jesus is meek he exercised strength under control. Testing exposes character. Look at verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus, straightening up, looking directly at him, giving them his full attention, turns the table so that the woman's judges were asked first to judge themselves. Jesus was not making perfection a prerequisite for addressing the sins and the lives of others. He's not doing that. But the law required that witnesses against an accused must not be complicit or in any way involved in the same activity for which they are accusing the other. Jesus was simply asking them to use the same standard on themselves as they were applying to the woman, according to the law. Apparently, they failed their own self-assessment because they began to depart. Beginning with the older, until no one is left to condemn the woman. Jesus, by inviting the one who was without sin to throw the first stone, displayed wisdom. It was an absolutely brilliant response. Testing exposes character. Notice verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. Note, first of all, that Jesus neither questioned nor excused the charge against this woman. Adultery was a serious offense. Sin of any kind is always unacceptable and inexcusable. I know it's difficult, but even within the household of faith, we need to hold one another accountable. We must not make excuses for one another or fear the fallout. Our spiritual well-being depends on it, both corporately and individually. Sin derails the sanctification process. Not addressing it in our own lives or in the lives of others will leave us spiritually impotent and stunt our spiritual growth. And then additional in addition to that as Chuck Swindoll mentioned in the quote I opened with God's reputation is at stake. Turn with me to that famous verse in John chapter 3 verse 16. Most of, it will, most of us will have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a great memory verse. My only question is, why do we stop there? Look at verse 17. For God did not send the, the Son into the world to judge the world. ESV and the NIV both use to condemn the world. Not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only begotten of God. Jesus did not come to condemn. He didn't excuse her sin. And neither did he condemn her, but he did, however, challenge her. Go, from now on, sin no more. I think that is a great definition for repentance. Leave your sin behind. Have nothing to do with it. Turn from those acts of sin that characterize your life. It's a great first step. Turn from your sin to Jesus Christ by believing in Him. Believe that He was who He said He did. Did what the Scriptures say He did. And will do what He promised He will do. And then confess in prayer something like this. Thank you, Father, for... Sending Jesus Christ to die for my sin. Help me to begin to live my life in a way that will please you. Jesus, by refusing to condemn the adulterous, displayed mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And could never earn. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. In Titus 3.5 he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done. In righteousness. But according to his mercy. Grace and mercy, character qualities of Jesus Christ. Testing exposes character. Now Jesus, being truly God and truly man, reflects the character of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation. Mm -hmm. Jesus reflected or displayed the character of God, live and in living color. This past week, I've been, in my own time alone with God, been working through the Psalms, and I came to Psalm 130. Turn there for a moment. As I read this, I thought, what a great psalm that reflects, again, the character of God. The psalmist begins in verse 1. Out of the depths, or out of that place of, of difficulty, tough times, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark my my iniquities, in other words, keep a record of my sins, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You and I can experience our day of redemption today. And it begins by going and sinning no more. So let me ask you, as we've looked at this episode, at the three characters that are involved here, to whom do you find yourself identifying? Maybe find yourself relating to that unnamed woman. Whose sin has been exposed. There's shame, embarrassment, maybe even some condemnation from those whose opinion you once valued. But by the end of the story, you know there is no condemnation at the Lord's Supper. Believe in Jesus. Come to the table. Go and sin no more. Maybe you're here this morning and you should be identifying with those self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. You need to realize that you're not qualified to condemn other people. To write them off as unreachable or unredeemable. After all, we're, we're all sinners. in Desperate need of a Savior who loves us, died for us, and is able to save us and enable us to begin working out that salvation in our own lives. For those of us who are Tempted to throw that first stone. Can I just suggest that you put it down? Let it go. But don't walk away. Don't follow the scribes and Pharisees. Believe in Jesus. Come to the table. Go and condemn no more. I'd like to say that all of us need to identify with Jesus, especially as we come to the table. And as we come, I trust and pray that this episode has given us a fresh glimpse of the one on whom God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall. It's Jesus, man of courage, man who is meek, a man who is wise a man who extends all kinds of grace and mercy. Come to the table. Believe in Jesus. For apart from him, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Not just a man, but a man of courage, meek, wise, extending mercy and grace. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A death that made a relationship with you possible. And so we celebrate him this morning. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.